Hello, this is episode 16 of Cognitive Gamer. I'm your host, Steve Blessing. Today we are going to talk about the cognitive psychology of virtual reality and how it relates to gaming. There's plenty to talk about with regards to both video games and even board games. With the introduction of the Oculus Rift, the HTC Vive, and PlayStation's virtual reality headset, along with other headsets used with phones, virtual reality has really made a bit of a splash over the last couple of years. And the new movie Ready Player One puts VR front and center. As an aside, if you haven't read the book for Ready Player One, I suggest you do so. There's a number of differences between the book and the movie, including whole plot elements about how the keys are actually found in one. I personally enjoyed both, but your mileage may vary. At any rate, at this point, I hope you have had the chance to experience virtual reality for yourself. If you haven't, you should still be able to enjoy the discussion here, but there's no substitute for actually trying it. You can hear someone talk about it, but you need to experience it to get a sense of what the big deal is all about. So, maybe a store has a demo unit, or you can try to hit up a friend if they have already taken the plunge to see what all the hype is about. I'm going to get a little philosophical about the topic in a couple of minutes, but before I do so, let me talk about two concepts that come up when talking about VR, immersion and presence. Presence is the more relevant one for psychology, so let me quickly talk about immersion first. Immersion is the more techie one, which gets into the specifications of the experience, like the resolution, the frame rate, and field of view for each headset. It's easy to compare those sorts of numbers, and generally speaking, bigger is better on those sorts of things. Bigger numbers will, everything else being equal, give you an experience that better approximates quote-unquote real reality, substituting the sensations you get from reality into a virtual world. There's some chance you have heard about the Uncanny Valley. The original idea was specifically relating to robots, but we can extend it to virtual reality experience as well. The notion actually goes all the way back to 1970 by a Japanese roboticist by the name of Matsuhiro Mori, though it wasn't until some number of years later that the idea picked up steam. This Uncanny Valley relates how realistic the robot or virtual experience, appears and our likability of it. If the robot or virtual experience isn't very realistic, we probably don't have much of a feeling about it one way or the other. But as the robot or experience gets more human or lifelike, we like it more. However, there's a point where the experience approaches being really lifelike that we get the heebie-jeebies from it. That's because it's almost there, but we still know it's fake. That's the uncanny valley. If the thing was truly lifelike and you can't tell the difference between the artificial thing and the real thing, like the humanoid Cylons and Battlestar Galactica, then your reaction won't suffer one way or the other. But there's a point just before that where you can still tell a difference that most people find a little bit off-putting. If you've seen the animated movie The Polar Express, you know what I mean. They attempted realistic depictions of humans, but you know they are not humans, the eyes are all wrong. They are in the uncanny valley. That's due mostly to immersion, the tech just isn't up to snuff in terms of resolution and character models. But it's not always all about which headset has the higher resolution or the quicker frame rate. There's a more subjective experience when you play virtual reality, and that's what's referred to as presence. A particular device or individual game may not have a high immersion, that is, a high simulation of reality, But in terms of your belief that this imaginary world is in fact real, it may score quite high. That is, you will subjectively feel a high amount of presence in this world. Whitmer and Singer, early researchers in VR, developed a questionnaire for presence, and the questions were aimed at seeing how much the user felt like they got lost in the virtual reality world that presented itself to them. 
They argued that in addition to the immersive component of virtual reality, presence also relied on how involved the user felt as they experienced the world. The higher the involvement, the higher the presence, and that can be separate from immersion. So, as a psychologist, I'm most interested in a user's feeling of presence. When is it do they feel like they are truly interacting with something real? Now, with that discussion of immersion versus presence under a belt, let's take a bit of a philosophical bend. It will help to understand a bit why presence can be separate from immersion. Ultimately, that's probably a good thing because that means you can have an an experience that provides a lot of presence, feeling like you really are in a different world, without it needing to provide a lot of immersion, which is great because the current tech doesn't allow for one-to-one mapping between what happens in real reality and what goes on virtually. Here's a seemingly silly question that I would ask the students in my sensation perception class, a class where we go into detail about how each of our five senses operate, how information from the outside world is picked up by our senses and then processed by our brain to give rise to our vision, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. In one of the first classes, I had the students put out their pointy finger and I asked them to poke the desk surface they are sticking at. Go ahead, you try it as well. I then asked them, Where do you feel this touch? Silly question, right? You feel the touch in your finger. Well, you only perceive the touch in your fingertip because of the activation of a few mechanoreceptors in your skin that starts a chain reaction in a series of neurons that travel up your arm to the spinal cord, up to your brain, and finally to a strip of gray matter in your brain called primary somatosensory cortex, which is part of your parietal lobe. There's some some number of neurons... I don't know how many, but a very, very small fraction of the total 100 billion neurons that comprise your brain are stimulated. It's only because those cortical brain cells are active that you feel the touch. Those brain cells are over a meter away from your fingertip, but it's only because those brain cells are active that you feel the touch in your fingertip. If I knew for sure which brain cells, I could take an electrode, artificially stimulate those same cells, and, without your finger touching a surface, you would have the perception of touch. In some sense, then, you feel the touch in your brain, not in your fingertip. And that touch that seems like a very direct, immediate process is only due to the activation of a series of neurons, so your perception is also layered and filtered by what happens as that signal gets processed. That's true of all your senses. They only happen because of the activation of the relevant brain regions. You might have heard about phantom limb pain. That's a perception that some number of amputees have that their missing limb is still there. It hurts or it itches, but the limb is gone. The initial neurons in the chain aren't there anymore, but the neurons of the spinal cord and the brain are still there, and they are trying to make sense of the signals they still create sometimes, thus generating the phantom limb pain. It's a mantra amongst sensation perception researchers that perception is not reality, that what you perceive the way the world to be in no way needs to resemble how the world actually is. That's obviously true for those folks who suffer from phantom limb pain. It's also the basis for most optical illusions. Our brain is doing its best to figure out the world, but sometimes its best guess is wrong. In the show notes, I'll link to a picture of strawberries. Take a look at it. You're safe for sure that the strawberries are red, but there's no red pixels in the photograph. Go ahead, examine it. I did. It's all shades of gray. Our brain's vision center manufactures whole cloth our perception of red, just like some people a couple of years ago perceived that one dress to be white and gold, not blue and black. If you think about it too much, it's enough to give you an existential crisis. Our perceptions of actual, real reality isn't really real. But on the flip side, we shouldn't be too surprised then that our perception of virtual reality can give us a feeling of presence. 
that we feel like we're actually there. Our brain is doing what it always does, using its inputs to figure out what, what's going on. And as that input gets to be more immersive, both in terms of that word's everyday meaning and in the particular meaning that I talked about above, our brain is going to be tricked more and more, allowing VR experiences to give us more and more feeling of presence. Let me say just a little bit about virtual reality and games and some of the techniques that get used. I'll touch on two points relating to vision. First, the obvious one, that these VR headsets give you a realistic sense of being in a virtual world. Just like a modern-day Viewmaster viewer or a 21st century stereoscope for you Victorians out there, the idea that each eye gets its own image is what enables VR headsets to give their wearer that sense of immersion and presence. Most people are aware that the two eyes get slightly different images, and we use that binocular disparity to give us a sense of depth. We use other cues as well. Even with only one eye, we can still sense depth, but our binocular disparity allows us to use what's referred to as stereopsis. Our brain has neurons devoted to detecting the disparity between the corresponding points in the images, and that gives us that rich sense of depth. It makes us feel like we are in that world. Sean Andrich of Gamers with Jobs podcast made an insightful point about this feeling, that playing games in VR turns the experience from being a third-person experience to more of a first-person experience, which increases the presence tremendously. That's the difference between thinking, that's my character on the screen, to thinking, that's me in the game. An early game I played on my PlayStation VR headset was the London Heist scenario, part of the PlayStation Worlds game. For part of the game, you're tied up in an old London warehouse with a mean guy pointing a gun at you. Thankfully, I never had a gun pointed at me in real life, but I now have a good sense of what that feels like. I'm sure my heart rate and breathing increased while that was happening in the game. I was in that London warehouse, having my life threatened. My rational brain had to work overtime to keep my emotional brain at bay. The second thing I would like to talk a little bit about is a cheat that programmers can use to keep the feeling of presence high when the immersion may not be up to the fidelity of the real world. Obviously, reality is in retinal-level graphics, 360 degrees around you, out to infinity, all the time. But current hardware can't produce that, not even close. Fortunately for programmers, players only have eyes in the front of our heads, so they only have to render what's in front of us, and usually you don't need or want to render objects out to infinity. But on the downside, whatever you render, you have to do it for both the left eye and the right eye. And, regardless of what and how you render and to what fidelity, it's still a lot of math no matter what. But here's the silver lining, and it relates to what we talked about back in Episode 3 when I discussed visual attention. People really only pick up on information in the center part of vision, the vision that's picked up by the fovea, the middle two degrees of visual angle in the middle of our vision. It turns out that's about the only part you really have to render in great detail. The rest you can fudge a bit. In fact, you can fudge it a great deal, and people won't notice. Indeed, sometimes you don't even have to render it. There's a great VR demo that you get with the Star Wars Battlefront 1 game, where you pilot an X-Wing in a 20-minute mission. It's awesome. If you have the chance, watch someone play it with the headset video projected to a TV. You notice that the edges of the screen are not rendered when the action gets intense. The player won't notice because they are concentrating on that tiny middle slice of the foveal vision. Their periphery is being totally ignored in that moment. Not rendering the periphery or rendering the periphery in lower resolution will save a lot of processing power for the things that the player will notice. Here's a third thing I should mention about the psychology of VR, and that's motion sickness. That comes about when there's a mismatch between expectations and experience. That's the same reason people get motion sick in real life in cars and boats. 
I know some people who get motion sick in the back seat of cars, but not when they're in the front seat driving. That's because when you're driving, you know what to expect. But in the back seat, you don't have as many cues and you're not the one in control. In virtual reality games with a lot of movement, that increases the chance a player may get motion sick. But programmers are getting a lot better at providing the proper cues to players in order to reduce motion sickness. Indeed, there are some fast-paced games out there now, and most players can play them without incident. But, just like with car sickness, some people are more susceptible than others. In case you're wondering how to deal with motion sickness, the obvious thing to do is to remove yourself from the environment as quickly as possible. A non-obvious thing to do, discovered by researchers at Iowa State University, is to stay in the virtual environment but engage in a menial task that requires focus, like playing a peg in the whole game. That turns out to be just as effective as removing yourself from the environment. Of course, the VR game has to provide the virtual menial task to do, and it turns out that you can increase your VR stamina. If you're prone to motion sickness but want to still play the games, you can work your way up to it. Start at just a couple of minutes and slowly increase the time you're in the virtual world. Most people's systems will adjust across time. Let's hear it for the brain's plasticity. As VR matures, it's going to be interesting to see how it changes. It has limitations, but oh, so many possibilities. I lived just an hour or so from Disney World and earlier this year got to try the Void's Star Wars experience, Secrets of the Empire. They term it hyper-reality, and if you were at Disney World or one of the other Void locations, I recommend trying it out. You put on a backpack that contains the computing hardware and the VR headset. In the Star Wars one, you are a team of four rebels posing as stormtroopers as you infiltrate an Imperial base to steal some technology. What makes it hyper-reality is that while you have the headset on, you are roaming around an actual series of rooms on which the virtual world gets overlaid. That means that when you see a wall or a door frame, you can reach out and touch it with your real hand, feeling it, but what you see is your stormtrooper hand reaching out and touching the virtual wall. That amps up the presence level to 11. Of course, at one point you get a blaster, and in your real hands is a real mock-up of a blaster, but in the virtual world it looks real and shoots lasers. Again, this is an experience I recommend you try if possible. Before signing off, I wanted to do an addendum on my last podcast, The Malleability of Memory. In that podcast, I discussed how our memory changes across time. A couple of weeks ago, I heard Jeff Kanata on DLC podcast number 226 interview Rob Davio about the new version of Fireball Island that Restoration Games is doing. The game has been taken Kickstarter by storm, and I'm sure some number of you have heard of it. But if you haven't, Fireball Island was a board game originally released in 1986 and has been out of print for a number of years. Restoration Games takes older games and dusts them off for modern game players, keeping the essence of the game, but maybe touching up the mechanics and other gameplay elements to be more in line with what we've learned about game design over the years. I picked up their Stop Thief game last year, and we've really enjoyed playing it as a family. Fireball Island is now getting the Restoration Games treatment. I was just a little bit too old when Fireball Island came out the first time for it to really hit my radar, but I understand that people a little bit younger than I am, who are now in their 30s and early 40s, have a very fond memory of the game, and now have families with younger children and are eager to share the game with those children. In the interview, Rob stated that they had to design with people's memories in mind. People misremember how good the game actually was. In their minds, they picture this great sprawling board with marbles creening down, chasing ponds like that boulder in Indiana Jones. 
But if you actually looked at the old board now and how the game played, you'd probably be a bit surprised at how it doesn't match your memory, and not in a good way. Indeed, in one of their ads for the game, they show a schematic of the old island overlaid on top of a schematic of the new island. The new island is bigger and taller, and there's a graphic detail that points out the difference to indicate how much more awesome the new board is. That new island had to be more awesome because it's competing with people's malleable memories. In the interview, Rob said they also pumped up the action of the marbles because, again, people remember the marbles as being faster than they actually were. That's simply how memory works, and kudos to Restoration Games for leaning into it. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion on virtual reality. It's a fascinating topic, and I did it at a higher level in order to talk about some of the more interesting points that apply to VR in general, so I didn't talk about many specific games in this podcast. I hope I didn't give you any existential angst as you consider how you experience virtual reality versus real reality. As always, I welcome any comments or questions you may have, so please email me, steve at cognitivegamer.com, and also visit my website, cognitivegamer.com. Also, you can like me on Facebook, Cognitive Gamer, or follow me on Twitter, at cognitive underscore gamer. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took the time to give this podcast a rating and a few kind remarks on iTunes or wherever you listen to Cognitive Gamer. This will make it easier for other people to discover the podcast. I appreciate those five-star reviews. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.